Welcome to One Hour Together as we explore the journey to full-time missions. This is for you, whether you're considering going international for a year or for two years or much longer. During the session, we will cover questions such as why, where, when, how. If this journey seems overwhelming, you are not alone. At a previous conference, I took the following photo of a group exploring full-time missions. Well, maybe I got this photo from somewhere else. Nonetheless, the feeling of being overwhelmed is natural, but just a hurdle to get over. My name is John, and I'm your host for this session. I have an MDiv in Theology and Missions. I serve in administration with the In His Image Family Medicine Residency. Our first presenter will be Jason, who is a physician living in North Central Africa. He is with the interdenominational mission agency, Frontiers. Then we will hear from Aubrey, who is a nurse who worked for two years in Central Asia. She served with the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptists. You may want to take a screenshot of this slide for reference during our session, as well as afterwards. If you're watching the session during GMHC, then feel free to use the live chat feature. If you are viewing this at another time, email question at inhisimage.org to connect with any of the three of us. I also want to mention the web resource askamissionary.com, which has answers to over 100 questions about guidance, funding, singles and family, mission agencies, professional skills, including healthcare, daily life overseas, and training. Well, let's start with Jason, who attended the GMHC during his years of training. Note, many of his slides have faces which have been blurred out for security reasons. Hey guys, I'm Jason Lee. My wife and I, along with our four kids, have worked in North Central Africa for five years now. And I want to share my story with you today, and my hope in doing so is that many of you will also follow Jesus' call to the ends of the earth. Many of you are looking for what God would have you do with your life. You're at that stage in your education or your training, and you're, you're looking to see what that next step is that God would have you do. I was in your shoes about nine years ago, so I very much remember what that was like and the questions that arose. Where should we go? What type of ministry should we pursue? What sending agency should we go with? Should we go with a team? How do we even do that? What about kids? So I'd like to share my story of how I went from a resident with a mind and heart for missions to being on the field and joining with God and seeing amazing things happen. I've learned some lessons along the way that I think can be really helpful for you. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but I didn't give my life to Christ until I was 17. And within about six months of that was the first time I ever heard of medical missions. I'd always done well in school and loved science and being outside, so I thought maybe I'd go into forestry or wildlife biology. But when I gave my life to Christ, I felt like maybe I should use all of that to show Christ's love to people. Then when I heard of medical missions, it, it just clicked. That's what I have to do. Not just should do or could do, but that's what I have to do with my life. And if I don't do that, then I won't ever be satisfied in life. And so the first lesson I learned really early, and that is resolve. Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. We have to have a resolve to see the kingdom come among every last ethnic group on earth. And if that resolve gets weakened by anything, then we're in danger of missing the whole thing, or at least of compromising on what it is that God wants us to join him in. So I just began to refuse to ever consider not going. So I started pursuing this in undergrad. I majored in biology and pre-med and college, but I also went to a Christian school and got a Bible minor and took as many Bible and missions courses as I could. I didn't really know much about medical missions beyond the few stories I had heard, but I kept pursuing and looking for more. I spent time in the school library reading old issues of Mission Frontiers magazine and Evangelical Missions Quarterly. 
I came across a book called Planting Churches in Muslim Cities by Greg Livingstone, and I devoured that book and used it for several of my papers and my missions classes. I went on short-term missions trips to wherever they would take me. I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, I was doing what Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators, had said so many years before. If you cannot see very far ahead, go ahead as far as you can see. I'm going to repeat that because it's one of the most important lessons I've ever learned. If you cannot see very far ahead, go ahead as far as you can see. The other thing that happened while I was an undergrad is that I was introduced to the concept of unreached peoples. I had heard very, very little about this concept on my missions courses, but what really blew it out of the water for me was taking the perspectives course. I also discovered in a real way, for the first time in my life, the incredible thread of God's heart for every last ethnic group on earth. It's a thread that runs from Genesis to Revelation and that shapes almost every interaction God has with mankind. And the deeper I went in this study, the deeper it got. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God knew the effect this would have if people obeyed him. For all the same reasons that some of us say you guys and some of us say y'all. And for the same reason that in many parts of our country, if you ask for a Coke, someone may ask you what kind. God understood humanity and he understood that if we obeyed him and filled the earth, that an incredible diversity of ethnic groups and languages and cultures would develop. That was his plan from the beginning. Not once, but five times he comes to Abram and tells him, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12.3. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, Genesis 13.6. If you've ever been to a really dusty country like the one we live in, you've seen how the dust just gets everywhere, even in places you tried really hard not to let it, like your computer. That's what God was already intending for Abraham's spiritual descendants to be like, permeating every ethnic group on earth. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abram and tells him that his offspring will be like the stars in the sky and that he will influence history so that they will occupy the most strategic piece of land in the world, the crossroads between Asia and Europe and Africa, Israel. God reiterates his covenant to, in Genesis 17 that Abram would be Abraham, the father of a multitude of nations. It's the same word, goyim, used throughout the Old Testament for nations and for Gentiles. Then, as if repeating this promise to Abraham four times wasn't enough, in Genesis 22, after God provides a substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac, he again promises Abraham that his offspring will be like stars and sand, and that in his offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as part of this discovery I had of God's heart for the nations, I discovered Revelation 5.9. And as time has passed, this verse has become the single most driving verse in all of Scripture for why I do what I do. It's an amazing scene. Those in heaven cry out to Jesus, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And there are still, in 2020, tribes and ethnic groups in which these ransomed people do not know that they were ransomed. Until each of those people in every ethnic group become disciples, the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ goes unfulfilled. Now remember back in Genesis 4.10, after Cain killed Abel, the Bible says that the voice of his blood was crying out to God from the ground, God, my brother murdered me. Do something. I believe that Revelation 5.9 implies that the blood of Jesus cries out just like the blood of Abel from the ground. Father, I bought these people with my blood. Make my blood count. And this is an incredible travesty. The blood spilled by the Holy One through such agony and suffering still goes on unfulfilled. Just as Isaiah 55.11 said that his word that goes out from his mouth will not return to him empty, but will accomplish that which he purposes and will succeed in the thing for which he sent it, I believe, according to Revelation 5.9, in the same way, Jesus' blood will not return empty from among the nations. And I also discover the other end of this thread running through Scripture, and that is that God almost always works through His people. 
Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Esther, David, Jonah, Peter, Paul, Philip, Timothy, on and on. God chooses to accomplish his purposes through his people. And I realized that his people is now me. Which is what I discovered in an incredibly powerful way in Matthew 24, 14 and a couple of other places. We find a most startling statement. Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus seems to be saying that we can know at least one of the prerequisites to his return, that the gospel will first be taken to every nation on earth. This is amazing. Now you may know that the word translated as nations here, like in the Great Commission, is ethne, and that it does not mean political nation states like Germany or Peru, but rather means ethno-linguistic groups, like we would call the Navajo and the Iroquois people's nations. Jesus specifically makes the point to say that the gospel reaching every ethnic group will precede the coming of the end, meaning the end of this age. That is the end of this age and the beginning of the age in which he will rule on the earth. This is one of the greatest paradoxes of the kingdom of God. Although Jesus has told us to care for the poor and to work to address poverty, that poverty will never end through any of our efforts. However, at some point after every ethnic group has reached the gospel, coinciding with the coming and rule of Christ, poverty will end. He does not mention whether this is a cause and effect relationship or what time period, if any, will take place between the two. He does, however, directly say that the gospel will reach every ethnic group and that after that, the end of this age will come. Now, we all know Jesus' famous statement in Matthew twenty-four thirty-six, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Some well-meaning believers use this verse to say that Matthew 24, 14 cannot regard the end of the age. But we have to keep reading. Verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. <clears throat> so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Now, I see no tension whatsoever between a literal reading of Matthew 24, 14, that every nation will be reached with the gospel before the end comes, and Matthew 24, 36, that no one can know the day and hour of his coming. The two are only tangentially related. The first is a statement and promise of the surety of world evangelization, and the second is a warning to stay awake spiritually and watching for his return. Further, even though we have a good idea of what God considers nations to be, and we have a rough idea of our progress through the amazing work of researchers like at Joshua Project, peoplegroups.org, we cannot be sure. God knows the nations, and he is orchestrating the task. We do our best to participate, but we can't possibly know the entire story. And so I discovered that we can take Matthew 24, 14 in full confidence as a promise that every ethnic group will be reached with the gospel and that it is God's unstoppable plan that the gospel will go to every ethnic group. There are some more pieces of supporting evidence for this. In Matthew 28, 20, after Jesus gave the Great Commission that is so familiar to all of us, he told his disciples, I am with you always to the end of the age. So he tells them to make disciples in every nation and every ethnic group on earth, and then he makes sure to reassure them that he will be with them until the end of the age. Why? Because he knows that until the end of the age, we usually won't be seeing him in person, short of miraculous dreams or visions. And so because Jesus meant Matthew 24, 14 literally, that we are to continue making sure that every ethnic group on earth has at least some disciples, and only then the end of the age will come, he reassures us that he is with us until that task is complete, at which time he won't need to remind us anymore that he's with us, because he will be visibly with us, reigning as king. And my last discovery for this I'll share with you is 2 Peter 3, 11 and 12. In this text, Peter is reminding his readers that while God wants all to repent, the present age will end in a roar of judgment. Then he asks rhetorically in verse 11 and 12, what sort of people we ought to be in light of knowing that? And then he says, we should wait for and hasten the coming of the day of God. What? Us? Hasten the day of God? Speed up the, day of the coming of the day of God? 
I don't know of any other way we can participate in history like that except by interpreting Matthew 24, 14 as meaning that we are to reach every nation to pave the way for the day of the Lord and for the next age. The other thing that I discovered while in college was my wife, who had a similar resolve toward missions. And here's another serious lesson for any of you who are single but hope to be married. We know multiple couples in which one spouse was dedicated to missions and the other just wasn't. And so now either they don't go or they go in ways that really aren't what they felt so resolved to do so long ago. So here's your lesson. If a potential spouse doesn't have the same or more resolve than you about going to unreached peoples, give them a pass. Don't even give them a second look. I've had multiple friends who had what others would have called a call to missions, but the resolve wasn't there, and they chose spouses that had more resolve not to go than to go. When I went to medical school, we were resolved to go into missions and to unreached peoples, but I really didn't know much more than that. And because of that, I was pretty sure I needed to go into family medicine and run a clinic or a hospital. That's really all I had ever heard of to that point. And I also knew that most people around me in medical school didn't really get what I was talking about. And so my wife and I made it a point to go to GMHC every year. And we continued to go every year all during medical school and surgery residency for 10 years in a row. Up until the first year I missed was uh, going on the vision trip to where we serve now. Also along the way in medical school, I discovered that I loved surgery, and so I had a slight course adjustment as I pursued surgery. Also during residency, my wife and I connected with the 24-7 prayer movement, which had a location in our city. It was actually a garage they had converted into a prayer room. And it doesn't seem like much, but it was pivotal in our journey for several reasons. One, it got us praying and praying. They would have these six-week periods of 24-7 prayer, and I would sign up for the 3 a.m. prayer slots that nobody else really wanted since I was getting up to go to the hospital by 4 a.m. anyway. Along the same time, I met this guy, Atif Rizwan. I was on night float, and I was the only surgery resident in the hospital at night, and he was the only medicine resident in the hospital at night. And so every morning at 2 or 3, when things would quiet down, we would see each other in the resident lounge, and we'd get to talking. And we talked about our lives, our families, and our faith. And I discovered that Atif was Muslim. He was from Pakistan. He was the first Muslim I had ever had a real conversation with. And so during those early morning prayer times the following month, I prayed for Atif. And I remember very distinctly one morning, God impressing on me to find others like him around me. And so I got one of those composite resident photos, the ones like in a yearbook that show all the residents. And I found that over half of the 40 internal medicine residents were all from Pakistan. And I assumed also Muslim. So I got another copy, and my wife and I started praying through those names every day. And I started meeting them in the hospitals, and we started hanging out with them and their wives outside of work. And we never saw any of them come to Christ, but God used this time to focus our resolve, not only for a vague concept of missions or even from unre for unreached peoples, but specifically for Muslim people groups. So the lesson here for you is to make time now for relationships with internationals, especially with people from unreached people groups. When I was a chief resident, we went through uh, a discipleship program that was the forerunner to what is now uh, called Launch Global. It, Launch Global is still around. It's a 10-month missions internship meant to be done alongside whatever work or school you're also doing, although I don't think the developers intended it to be done alongside surgery residency. However, I was a chief resident. So I made the schedules, and I could make sure I had every Tuesday off call and the occasional weekend trainings off call, so it worked. It was incredibly hard to do this during residency, but it was so pivotal. We were introduced to the concepts of church planting movements and disciple-making movements, and we started reading books that talked about how God was moving around the world in ways that we had never heard of before. Also during residency, one of those years at the Global Missions Health Conference, the Christ Community guys and Rick Donlin and Charles Fielding, we call him Chuck, were giving out Chuck's book, Preach and Heal. I devoured that too, and it made me think about medical missions in a way I never had before, and it finally tied together everything I had been learning about church planning movements and health strategies. 
and it gave me a lot to think about just as I was graduating from surgery residency about how surgery might or might not fit into catalyzing movements of disciples. The other thing I was doing during residency was research. I knew enough from perspectives and from my own study how to find out where the unreached people groups are. I spent tons of my precious little free time poring over maps like this one. And I learned that most of the data we have is based on an arbitrary level of 2% evangelical in a people group to call it reached. And I learned where that number of 2% came from. In 1995, as Joshua Project was being developed, a committee headed by Patrick Johnstone, the editor of Operation World, decided that any people group with less than 2% evangelicals and 5% Christian adherents would be defined as unreached. I learned that most of the data we have on whether a people group is reached or not is based on this arbitrary level of 2% evangelical. And I also learned that they had arrived from an even higher number of 20% that had been used throughout the late 70s and 80s. And I went back to my Bible and tried to find some indication of why they chose that number, but I really couldn't find it. But I came across verses like this again. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. God never promised that there would be 2% or 20% from every ethnic group that would follow Jesus. What did he promise? People. That's all we were promised. So while 2% is a great way to highlight needs and to account for variations and inconsistencies in reporting and research, it's just not in the Bible. And while we pursue movements of whole families and extended families and tribes, just like we see in Acts, we know that in the end we have to trust and follow God's word and his definitions. And so I learned that research like this is amazing, but they do reflect this level of 2%, which I believe overestimates the number of remaining unreached people groups. So, for example, let's take uh, Syrian Arabs. Even though there are 34,000 Syrian Arabs who are disciples of Jesus, they are still considered an unreached people group because that's only 0.2% of the total 15 million Syrian Arabs around the world. And there are many, many other examples like this. The other factor that I discovered that overestimates the number of remaining groups is that whenever members of a group move away from their homeland to another country and become diaspora, these data then count them as a separate people group. Now this makes a lot of sense for finding where people groups live around the world, but separating people groups by what country they live in is just not a biblical distinction. And so this too has the effect, in my mind, of overestimating the remaining, remaining number of unreached peoples. So when you only look at people groups with zero disciples, and you only count each people group once, no matter where they live in the world, there are only around 2,500 people groups left. That's exciting. However, despite these, uh, these faults, this research is amazing, and it's the best we have. And I've spent tons of time on Joshua Project searching various countries and seeing which ones had wide diversities of people groups with zero disciples and then comparing this with health data to see where the greatest needs are. But despite all that, I discovered where the completely unreached people groups are and we kept narrowing our search down to only those places. I also discovered where we as the global church have been sending long-term workers. This map is made from data from a study in 2010, so it's a little dated, but it shows where sent out workers are sent to. And you can see that we continue to send workers by the thousands or even tens of thousands to reached areas like North America, Latin America, Europe, and Sub-Saharan Africa. The news is gradually getting out about unreached peoples, but the stats are still not much better than this in 2020. And when we combine these two maps, I discovered one of the main reasons that there are still unreached ethnic groups who have yet to claim Jesus' blood for them. Among other things, we have not yet sent disciples to them with a the gospel. It's that simple. North Africa, the Sahel region of Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, parts of the Middle East, South Asia, and parts of Southeast Asia are starved for disciples who will come tell them. 
Of course, these are the more difficult areas. They are harder to live in. The enemy has had them in his grips for far longer. But these are the places we have to go. And with all of this that I was learning about God, what God was doing in the world, I realized something. I realized that I had been asking the wrong question all along. I had been asking God, what is your will for my life? Meaning, what is your special will for my life? Because, hey, I'm kind of a big deal. And I really need a special will if I'm going to do something crazy like obey scripture. And hearing about all these amazing movements around the world among previously unreached peoples, I thought, now why in the world would God do it differently through me? He won't. And why would he call me to a special place when I now knew where the ethnic groups are with zero disciples? He's expecting me to get on board with what he's doing in the world, and he expects me to do things in this amazing way that he is doing things, not the way I'd always thought I would do them, not as a surgeon seeing hundreds of patients every month, not how my Christian attendings who did short-term trips did them. Steve Smith, who wrote, co-wrote T4T, said it this way. He said, Ask not, what is God's will for my life? Rather, ask what is God's will, his purpose in this generation, and how can my life best contribute to it? Which, of course, begs the question, what is God doing in this generation? And when I combined everything I had been learning, where the people groups are with zero disciples, where the movements to Christ are happening, and that there are only around 2,500 distinct people groups left, I discovered that what God is doing in this generation is finishing the task. He's taking people like you and me and really any disciple who would listen to him, and he is finishing the Great Commission, I believe, in our lifetime. And I knew even then that if we were going to move overseas and take our kids and make all kinds of sacrifices and take all kinds of risks that seem absolutely insane to our colleagues and families, that we wanted all of that to make the biggest impact possible. So we wanted the most opportunities to reach different unreached people groups and the most opportunities to make a difference in people's health. And this is maybe selfish, but I didn't want to move around the world and live in the desert and have my kids get malaria so I could work with a people group that already has disciples or to go to a country that already has somewhat of a health system that is addressing most of the health needs. But even with all that, there are still a lot of places that fit all of those criteria. However, by the end of residency, we still weren't sure where to go overseas. We had resolved to go to unreached Muslims, and we were resolved to go to the poor and work strategically to improve both health and to catalyze disciple-making movements and as part of a team. And all this together made us fairly resolved to go as part of the organization we're in now because all our organization does is, is reach Muslims and see work toward reproducing movements and work in teams. But we still didn't know exactly where. So we went ahead as far as we could see. We knew we needed to surround ourselves with others who were passionate about missions and the poor and injustice. And we didn't want to just be somewhere where we would be dragged into the American doctor's lifestyle or pressured into partnership and a practice. We wanted to go where those around us would pour gasoline on our fire and not water. We wanted gasoline people. We had found some of those gasoline people at GMHC in those years before, and we had gone up to Rick Donlin after one of his convicting, awesome talks and asked him, is there any place for a surgeon with what you're doing in Memphis? And he said, well, no, sorry. But then my fourth year of residency, we heard through the grapevine that these guys in Memphis were for the first time in its then 17-year history looking for surgeons. So we went and interviewed, and it all seemed to fit, at least for a time, until we could figure out where in the world to go. And we became part of one of the house churches there. And we soon learned that the house church network there was working to place a team in the eastern Sahel in Africa. The church had adopted the Fuer people of Sudan to pray for and send to years back before we came. And a couple had actually been sent out and finished their two-year term there with much intense hardship and much government scrutiny. And soon after they finished that term, all of the other Americans had been deported. And so this couple and our elders and Chuck developed a plan to put a team in a nearby area of this Sahel many of the same ethnic groups as in Darfur, but politically easier for Americans to live in than Sudan. And it seemed to fit. There were 20 unreached Muslim people groups, 15 of which have zero known disciples, incredible poverty, and a team in development.
However, there was one little point. I'm a surgeon. And the infrastructure and training of ancillary staff in that country for surgery, even in the cities, is spotty at best and deadly at worst. So doing surgery there would require an incredible outlay of effort and funding into just shoring up the existing infrastructure and training to a level that I could do surgery and actually feel good enough about the level of care to sleep at night. And besides, catalyzing movements of disciples in 15 rural tribes would require a strategy that gave us plenty of time to pray and be in their homes and in their lives to find people of peace story through scripture, and make disciples. And me hunching over anesthetized patients for hours each day just wouldn't really fulfill those requirements. And so it began to become clear that joining this team would require, at least for a time, giving up full-time surgery. Um, Now remember, I had just finished five grueling years of surgery residency so that I could do full-time surgery. And I was really struggling with this. Everything seemed to fit perfectly. Multiple unreached Muslim people groups in one place, incredible poverty, need for better health, awesome team to do it with, awesome sending church. But what to do about my training? Now Chuck, Charles Fielding, was in Memphis at that time, and we were having a conversation about all of this at my kitchen table. And he told me the story of when they first arrived in Pakistan. And he had a vision for using direct medical care to reach the unreach of Pakistan. But at every turn, their plans ran into walls, usually with government leaders. But eventually, he came to the end of his rope on this, and he heard Jesus telling him, Chuck, you have to lay medicine down. And it was an incredibly difficult thing for him to do, but that's what he, because that's what he had worked so hard for so long to be able to do. But he realized that he had made his identity primarily as a doctor and not primarily as a disciple of Jesus. And I realized that I had done the same thing with being a surgeon. I had been putting my own parameters on God's plans. I had been thinking all along, I'll go anywhere and do anything, as long as I'm doing surgery along the way. And after that conversation, I realized that if I was going to do this thing, I had to be willing to do or not do whatever it takes. So in 2012, I traveled there with two of our future teammates, and Chuck actually met us there. And it wasn't as much of a vision trip, because we already had the vision to go there, but it was more of a fact-finding trip. What's it going to take to live here? Where do these groups live? What do we need to do to prepare and be fruitful here? Now, while on this trip, I was having some people pray for us back at the 24-7 prayer room in Michigan. And while we were on the trip, I got an email from the leader of the prayer room, Tony. And he said this, I was praying for you and saw, had had an image. I saw you having coffee with someone, little espresso cups. And it wasn't a swanky cafe. And it was not a person that one would see as exalted. But I sensed this person would be your bridge into the kingdom field you and your family would be called to. Now, Tony really didn't know much about where we were going or our itinerary, just that we were going to North Africa and I was asking them to pray. So the whole two-week trip, we were looking for this mysterious man, but we never found him there. But then on our way back, we had a long layover, and it was raining, and we stepped into this tiny cafe run by an immigrant woman to get some coffee and warm up. And as we sat there, somebody said, hey, maybe John's the guy. And John was with us. He was planning to join the team, he and his family. And I thought, yeah, maybe John is the guy. So I emailed him back this picture and said, was this the guy you saw? He said, Tony said, yeah, he looks like the guy. So that, along with this entire trip, was a huge confirmation. And that story brings up the next huge lesson. If you are even considering going overseas, you need to start tomorrow gathering a team of people who will be praying for you. They don't have to necessarily meet together, although that's awesome when they do, but you need people that you can send updates to and request and know that they will pray for you. So if you're even considering going overseas, that's enough, in my opinion, to start telling people about your plans as far ahead as you can see so that they can pray. If you're telling anyone else about it yet, then the chances are pretty good that the enemy knows your plans. And so he and his little minions are going to be doing whatever they can to derail you. So you need this team, or better yet, an army of people praying for you regularly. Now some of you are actually part of that team for us, and I can't say how much I appreciate it. So we ended up going with this team. Most of our teammates went ahead of us to France to start French study in the early fall of 2013. And we began fundraising over the winter and spring of 2014.
I was still working with Christ Community Health Services, and on March 6, 2014, I had a clinic day. And for many weeks, I had gotten in the habit of getting up early around 4.30 each day to finish notes, and I really was not getting enough sleep. And that day, it was my turn to do devotion before clinic, and I could tell that something was not right with me. It was like my thoughts were getting stuck in my head before they would come out. People thought I was just getting emotional because I was talking about, you guessed it, reaching the unreached around the world. I got through that, went to my office to grab some food and coffee before I started clinic. My first patient didn't speak English, and so we had an interpreter. And I started interviewing her, and the next thing I knew, I was on the floor. And a couple of the other doctors were sitting over me telling me that I had just had a seizure. Now, at the age of 33, I had never had a seizure before in my life. It was crushing. It brought up all kinds of questions. What does this mean? Is this going to keep happening? Do we still go to the field? Our church mobilized to, to pray. Um, many were laid out in the floors of their houses, crying out for my healing and praying that it wasn't the types of things that usually cause uh, first seizures in a 33-year-old, brain tumors, aneurysms. Thankfully, it was not. It was My neurologist thought it was um, from lack of sleep. Um, and I started clinic back after a couple weeks, um, but I, my neurologist didn't want me to operate independently, um, rightfully so, uh, for three months, but I could assist my partners. And then about a month after the seizure, I had one of the worst days of my life. I was assisting my partner, Sarah, with an adult circumcision um, because it was a patient I had scheduled, and she didn't usually do that procedure. And our scrub tech was a crusty old um, lady that had the reputation of being really tough and sassy. And it took us several tries to get the markings just right before we made the incision. And all of a sudden, the scrub tech says, are you just going to play with that thing all day? She didn't mean it in a nice way, and for the first time ever, I asked for another scrub tech. I had never done that before, and I've never done it since. The surgery went fine. I headed back to clinic to work on paperwork, and not long after I got back, one of our nurses got on the intercom and said a doctor was needed urgently. I went to see what was wrong, and there was a woman in the floor having a seizure, not 10 feet from where I had had that seizure a month prior. It was more than I could take. There were plenty of other doctors around who stabilized her, so I left. I went and locked myself in the bathroom and cried for about 15 minutes until I could get my composure. Then I just went outside to a picnic table and cried some more. But I could feel Jesus sitting right next to me. It was a feeling I've come to know many times since then. Jesus was there with me. The rest of that day, though, I just wasn't myself. And then that same night, a very severe thunderstorm came through. The thunder was incredibly loud, the kind that shakes your house. It woke me up about three in the morning. As I, as I lay there in bed, I began to replay the awful events of the day. It felt like accusations. Finally, I prayed, Jesus, you've got to make this stop. Almost immediately, I saw this vision. I, I don't know what else to call it. I was half awake. I saw myself, my wife, and my four kids, and we were all meeting Jesus. He knelt down and said hi to each of the kids by name. He talked to them about things only he would know about. He also said hi to my wife and gave us all hugs. We were all so excited to meet him. Then something crazy started to happen. His clothing and our clothing started to turn bright white like the transfiguration. Then we all started flying up in the air fast. It was actually really scary at first. But then I looked at my two boys who were then six and eight, and they were flipping around saying, doing tricks saying, Hey, Dad, watch this. And then our girls, who were two and four at the time, did the same thing. Hey, Dad, watch this. Twirling and spinning around as we continued to hurtle through the air. And even as the kids were having such a great time, Jesus had us on some kind of mission because we were going very fast and in one very focused direction. And I looked over at my wife as we were flying, and she had a huge smile on her face and had her arms spread out wide. And Jesus had a big smile on his face too. And he looked at me and said, hey, I want to show you something. And immediately, thousands of people from the country we were planning to go to, also dressed in white like us, came flying up around us. They were all flying just as fast to the same place we were going. They all had huge smiles on their faces just like we did, and their kids were doing flips and tricks just like ours. I was already crying in real life in my bed, but now I really started bawling. Somehow all this settled down, and he let me know that these were encouragements for me in this time. These were things that he is reminding me of that he had already promised in his word that he would do and that he will do through us and our teammates and supporters. So since I couldn't do surgery, my partners um, took over the call and um, most of the surgery and 
it actually gave our family time to do more fundraising and, and raise financial partners and things that I could never have done if I were still on call every third night. So it showed us that God is faithful no matter what. And so later that year, we moved to France to learn French. And uh, the following year, we moved to the Sahel and we lived in the capital for the first year uh, learning. And then uh, the following year, in September of 16, we moved to the city where we live now. And we continued in language study, but our whole team focused on developing a set of health lessons and kingdom stories that would go on to form the core of our health and discipleship strategy. And we continued to ramp up our prayer efforts to the point that we were praying about six hours together per week. And after six months of living there in our city, we came to the point that we started doing the, the health lessons and sharing the Bible stories. We made a major push into prayer, asking God for for this um, for guidance and for for how He would have us do things. And over the last four years, one thing has led to another. We've shared our program of health lessons and Bible stories with multiple families, several of which have led to Bible studies and people starting to follow Jesus. And I wish I had more time to tell you of all the amazing things God has been doing, but that's going to have to be for another time. So now it's your turn. Your story will be different from mine, but I bet it will have a lot of the same characteristics. You're going to need a resolve of steel to get past the arrows the enemy is going to be firing at you. There are going to be times when you just cannot see very far ahead. Don't ever quit. Keep going ahead as far as you can see, even if that's only today. Dig into scripture. You'll unbury this amazing thread of God's heart for the nations. Do searches for words like nations, families, earth. You will be amazed. Do not let that image go of the blood of Jesus lying in the sand, people walking over it, not knowing that if they just knelt down and accepted that payment, they would have a new life and the hope of new life for their entire people group. Learn to pray. I mean, learn to grow in intimacy with Jesus. Let him sit next to you. Have conversations with him about what you're going through. Learn to ask him questions and sit and listen for the answer. Ask him to open your mind and heart to the scriptures. Start looking for people from unreached people groups around you now. Surround yourself with gasoline people. Whatever church you're part of or job you take, find at least some people who get what you're driving toward. Develop the prayer team now. I'm serious. Start tomorrow or at least this week. Make a list of people who care about you. Share with them whatever you're as far as I can see is and invite them to begin praying into that with you. Ask the right questions and make your life contribute to God's purpose in this generation, finishing the task of the kingdom coming to every ethnic group on earth. Do the research to understand which people groups have zero disciples. You can start here. Go ahead and write these down or take a screenshot. Bob and Jam Blinko led the first team to take the gospel of the kingdom to the Kurdish people in modern times. Bob said it this way, Those who go anywhere to do anything do not end up doing something that must be done. We have to think more carefully and do the study and the research. There is a certain place and a certain people group who will not hear the gospel unless you go tell them. Expect God to hold you up through things you never thought you could handle because you could not have without him. Expect this whole thing to work because God promised that every ethnic group on earth would have disciples. And so if you're working among a group that does not have disciples, God promised that it would eventually work. And then it's your turn. Your story won't be just like mine, but God will write a story with your life. And my prayer for you is that it is more mind-blowing movements of his spirit and that he will use you to bring the kingdom among the completely unreached. Thank you, Jason, for sharing your journey to unreached people groups in North Central Africa. Now we are going to hear from Aubrey. She was a nurse for two years in Central Asia. 
Well, Aubrey, you went as a single, um, you went as a woman, and you went to a, a culture that's uh, pretty distant from your uh, uh, home culture. Can you share a little bit about your experiences in that area? Hey, John. Yeah, I would love to. Um, probably my experience, I imagine, is a little different than Jason's. Um, and so whenever um, I'm asked this question about <clears throat> being single and, um, yeah, just a different context, my um, personal context was a Muslim context. Um, I think what initially comes to mind is there were just so many advantages of it um, and just so many things that I can praise God for and just how God used even my singleness and being a, a female in this context for his glory and I hope and pray for the um, furthering of his kingdom. I think one thing that specifically comes to mind is um, I just really felt like um, I was really just immediately, um, not always immediate, but often immediately just really accepted and received to be part of uh, their family. Um, and so um, just praise the Lord, God provided a lot of local friends for me. And it was like I was immediately a sister. I was immediately an aunt, a daughter, um, a granddaughter. And so they, they really just kind of welcomed me as part of their own family because I didn't have, you know, my own family with me. Um, and so I just praise God for that. I, I, um, I think that that opened up a lot of opportunities just really for me to share um, and to share life with them and um, for me to be able to, yeah, to, to share the gospel with them, but also um, share my life and, um, and also to receive their help um, and how they helped me, um, you know, adapt to the community and um, teach me about their own culture and language and all of these things. Um, so you went over there, Aubrey. Uh, thanks for sharing with, um, you know, you knew English. You were from the United States. Um, but how did you learn language and get to be a part of families? Uh, yeah, that's <clears throat> that's right. Language is, is key. If I didn't know their language, I couldn't communicate with them at all So because they didn't know any English. So um, <clears throat> what language looked like for me is the first five months I was there, I had the opportunity to be in totally full-time language. Um, so what that looked like for me is I actually went to a school um, four hours a day, five days a week, and um, they were trained on the Growing Participator Approach, or GPA, um, as some people may know it as. So this is, um, without saying too much about it, it's a, basically a six-phase um, process of language learning, but it, it's very much a kind of um, a style of learning that is not what we experience in maybe the USA. So it doesn't, you don't just read from a book, you don't even really learn to read and write initially. Um, it's all about story building and shared stories and sharing about your life. And um, it kind of almost is it uses a method like we kind of learn language as kids. Um, and so that was kind of my, my um, ex just personal experience with language. Um, I really, really enjoyed that particular method. Um, I know a lot of other people that like that method too. And um, let's see, so you went to class in the morning um, and was that right. it? Was it just homework in the afternoon that you had to sit in a book and like, you know, your awful Spanish high school <laughs> class or was it different than that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, um, it, it did include some of that, um, but what I would try to do is really to be in the community in the afternoon or to invite community into my own house. Um, and so just praise God, God really provided a couple of really good um, female friends that would come over and, you know, initially they would come over and we would talk about you know, spoons and forks and the weather, because that was the extent of my ability of language. But as they continued to have patience with me and they continued to come, um, praise God, he really used that, um, those times to really build very strong friendships. And really those are the, the friendships that grew um, the most. And those are the girls that I still have contact with even now. Um, wow, well, good stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, let's move on to the uh, healthcare aspect. I, I've got a, a picture um, up on the screen here of, of a big crowd of people in a tent. And so can you describe the healthcare experience that you guys had there? Yeah, so what you're looking at is a, um, a health fair that we threw in a community. And this is actually in, a, um, in the yard of a mosque. And we put up these tents and it was wintertime. So that's why we had those heaters there to help keep everybody um, warm. But so um, what we did as a healthcare team um, is we would have health fairs and invite all the pregnant women in the community to come to this health fair. We would do health lessons. And actually um, what you're seeing is you're seeing local midwives. They're the ones actually doing the healthcare lesson. Um, and so they taught those and then we as a group would follow up with these pregnant women kind of as like what you would maybe know as like a prenatal visit um so we would follow up with them in their own homes um and so we kind of incorporated this healthcare lesson that would then lead to follow up and so we would you know check blood pressures and blood sugars and but it was primarily just a lot of education um, on, you know, pregnancy and uh, risks and when to go to the hospital and what to do, you know, complications arise and, you know, those kind of things. Wow. And so you got to, as a group, meet a lot of different people. Um, let me uh, go on to this, uh, this next slide, which is a, a picture of you with one other person. Yeah, so this is just an example of what um, what that follow-up looks like. Um, so the reason that this was really just important for us is to get in homes um, is so that we could have opportunities to share um, what we kind of call the main thing, which is sharing the gospel. Um, and so we, we understood that maybe in that big health fair context that may not have been necessarily a good venue to really share the gospel just for security reasons, but <clears throat> also the women may not have felt comfortable to really receive that information. So then being in their homes, um, we could then have an opportunity to, to really to kind of go deeper um, and to be <clears throat> hopefully led by the spirit and what that looks like. But um, some things that, you know, I always try to do were yeah, to, to bring in truth of the gospel, but at least, at the very least, to, <clears throat> excuse me, to pray with them and pray for the health, their health, and the baby's health. Um, so that's kind of what our my context looks like overseas. Wow. Thank you for serving there among that Unreached People group, and uh, thank you for sharing with us today. There is so much to explore on the journey to full-time missions. Over 20 years, I've gathered questions from aspiring missionaries in North America and then received answers from missionaries around the world. And those are all available to you right now at askamissionary.com. For example, how do you select a mission agency? Um, what, how's, how does the funding work? Uh, the financial need, and what about school debt? Um, guidance, how does the Lord lead you um, in when to go, where to go, who to go with? What about your parents, their opinions? Also have a number of questions related to professional skills, both in healthcare and other areas like education, business, and engineering. Um, training, uh, what degrees do you need to have if you're interested in uh, different areas? And then what about singles and families? And so that's all online on askamissionary.com. Sometimes it's hard to read a whole website, um, but if you want to grab a book in your hand or on your Kindle, there's also the Ask a Missionary book, uh, which is available for InterVarsity Press, and it also has some um, features that are not available online as well. Let me share uh, with you a few of the examples from uh, Ask a Missionary. Uh, questions that singles have. What perspective should I take towards serving in missions as a single? Um, should a single person uh, find a mate before they go? 
should you can should a, a single person consider a relationship with a mi future missionary who wants to serve in a different country? Um, so a lot of uh, questions related to that, as well as families and raising kids, uh, marriage roles. What are women allowed to do on the mission field? Uh, what about the wife of a medical professional? Where would that person fit in healthcare missions? Um, or how does the husband of a healthcare professional who raises the children fit in? And then finally, what about my spouse and I are both medical professionals? How could we share medical ministry and family roles? So that's a, a key resource available for you. Um, let me share with you a couple of the other uh, questions that have answers online specifically related to healthcare. I'm just beginning university. Um, do you recommend I become a physician, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a physician's assistant, or physical therapy? Um, I'm a medical student. What specialty do you recommend for healthcare missions? Um, how do you find an agency in healthcare missions? I'm in nursing. Do I get further training? Um, I want to be a missionary who does more than just healthcare. How do I deal with the time constraints? So a number of different questions and answers, some that you may have thought of, some that you may not have. Um, so here's our summary slide as a reference for you, and we invite you to take a screenshot of this slide uh, for reference afterwards. If you're watching this session during GMHC, feel free to use the live chat feature to ask a question now, and uh, we'll be online right at this point. Or if it's after the conference is over, you can email us anytime at question at inhisimage.org to reach me or Jason or Aubrey. And uh, let me mention that Jason is looking for more team members to join him in North Central Africa. So you can use that email address and I'll get your uh, question and get you connected to him. Um, there's the askamissionary.com website that we just talked about with answers to over 100 questions. And then uh, here's a section here, joshuaproject.net. That was how Jason researched unreached people groups. Uh, Priority15.org, we haven't talked about that today yet, and that developed after Jason uh, launched into full-time missions. But this would be a way if you wanted to connect with healthcare professionals that have already selected 15 unreached groups to form teams and reach out. Um, perspectives.org is something Jason mentioned as part of his journey, and that's a 15-week course in person or online about cross-cultural ministry. And then launchglobal.org, that was similar to the um, discipleship opportunity that Jason was a part of, joining a community for a year in the USA to prepare for full-time international work. So all of those are resources, and you can also let your inbox help you fan the flame of missions. You can sign up for every few months the askamissionary.com newsletter, or if you want to get something every week, there's the Mission Catalyst newsletter, which shares missions, news, and resources to equip you for global ministry. So Aubrey, would you please uh, lead us in prayer now as we conclude our time together? I would love to. <clears throat> Oh, great God, we <clears throat> we come before you today, and I just, um, Lord, I don't know who's all listening in or watching virtually. Um, God, we thank you for the, those that you have brought, Lord, that those who are listening right now. God, I don't know their names, and I don't know their stories. I don't know what you are doing and how you're prompting in their own life, but God, you do, Lord. You're the God who sees and the God who hears, and and so I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to just guide and to lead. Lord, I pray for these folks. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would be listening. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you, um, yeah, would just grant wisdom. God, we thank you for the works that you have prepared beforehand, God, and we do want to walk in them. Um, God, I just, I do, Lord, I just praise and thank you for what you are doing in each of our own lives. Lord, I praise you for what you have done in my life, what you are continuing to do. God, we just desire to, to know and to love you more, and we desire to share that love um, with those that we interact with, Lord, in whatever context that looks like. Um, and so, God, we do just pray. Lord, we pray that 
um, you would continue um, to use us or that we would be your vessels. God, we know that you don't need us, um, but that you've con- you've, you choose to use us, Lord, weak and feeble as we are, Lord, that you would get all the praise and all the glory and all the honor to your name. God, you are so worth it. Lord, you are worth, um, you are worth going. Lord, you are worth um, putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations, God. And so we just, Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in Jason's um, life and story. We thank you for what you have done in my own and um, God, we just pray for that you would be glorified. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.